Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. This decision to fire the service propulsion system engine there on the far side of the moon is a critical one, for once they have committed themselves to moon orbit, uh, then they, of course, have to get out of moon orbit if they're ever to come home again. They will have two possibilities of doing that in contrast to Apollo 8. The principal means and the intended means will be to fire for a second time the service propulsion system engine after they have jettisoned the lunar module. However, if before they cut loose the lunar module, they decide that there is trouble with the service propulsion system engine, they could use the descent stage of the lunar module itself to put them into the trans-Earth trajectory, that is to send them back toward Earth instead of forever circling the moon. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 194 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10, Acquisition of Signal and Lunar Orbit. We ended the last episode just after loss of signal from Apollo 10 as it went behind the moon. The next step of the mission was to fire the service module's main engine to slow the spacecraft enough to orbit the moon. This burn had to occur while Apollo 10 was behind the moon out of contact with mission control. Before Apollo 10 even left the ground, John Young was asked about the reliability of the surface propulsion systems engine. Here's the clip. Well, I think uh, the service propulsion system has certainly shown that it's a very reliable system design-wise. I don't I don't, I don't think that it has any design problems. Uh, one thing about Apollo 10 that we didn't have in Apollo 8 is if, if, if we can't do lunar orbit insertion, uh, you know, if for some reason the engine doesn't light and we coast out of lunar orbit, or if it lights and only burns for a little while we have, and then shuts off for some reason, we can still get out of lunar orbit with a descent propulsion system on the lunar module. So we're a whole spacecraft up on the Apollo 8 guys. And uh, again, if uh, for some reason before we uh, start a rendezvous and stage the descent engine on the lunar module, uh, the service propulsion system were to quit, we can redock, leave the descent engine on the limb, and use the descent engine to get us back. So we're a couple of engines ahead for a long period of time. You just heard John Young mention using the lunar module's main engine as a backup if there was a problem with the service module. Here's a clip with a little more detail on the lunar module engines. We give you a a walk around of the engines. Actually, the lunar module has 18 engines all together on it, Uh, many of them very similar to those on the command module. And right out out the window here is some of the 18, the uh, RCS, the reaction control system. Scott, uh, we're going to be hearing terms, terms like dips and apps and that sort of thing. Tell us about those other big engines. Well, the RCS that you mentioned, there are four on each corner. They're called quads. <clears throat> uh, 
on the descent stage, that large engine you see sticking out below, that's the descent propulsion system, that's the dips. It's about to roughly 10,000 pounds of thrust. On the ascent stage, you have the ascent engine, the ascent propulsion system, that's the apse that you're referring to. And the, the dips, uh, we're told, we can use that to help uh, bring the docked spacecraft uh, back to the moon if necessary. Well, yes, if there back should be... The moon if necessary. <laughs> if there should be a problem uh, with the propulsion system on the service propulsion module, then you can use the descent engine from the limb, even though it's only approximately half the thrust, it just means you would have to fire it twice as long. And in effect, all these engines we're talking about... Uh, really don't have what you would call moving parts. No, no, they don't. They have uh, fuel and oxidizer, and when they mix together, they immediately ignite. This is the hypergolics that we were referring to before. And hopefully the reliability is about the same as dropping a match in a gas tank. Yes. Inside Apollo 10, on the far side of the moon, the crew was impressed by the lunar landscape although Stafford insisted it looked like a big plaster of Paris cast. The three found it almost incredible that the group in the trenches back on Earth had been smart enough to place them within 110 kilometers of the moon. But there they were. They caught just a glimpse of the surface a minute before they fired the service module engine to go into lunar orbit, an activity that required all their attention. And this simulation shows that engine burning. It should be taking place right at this moment. It burns for five minutes and 54 seconds, almost six minutes. Slows down the spacecraft by nearly 2,000 miles an hour, from 5,700 miles an hour to 3,720 miles an hour. And as Leo just pointed out, and we have before, uh, that is uh, the orbital speed that suspends it between the moon's gravitational pull and the momentum which would uh, throw it on out into space again with its speed. The six-minute retrograde maneuver seemed interminable, just as it had to Borman's crew on Apollo 8. But the engine kept firing, and Apollo 10's crew's confidence in it kept growing. When the engine finally shut down, and they were sure that it had done its job, Stafford and Cernan had time to look at the lunar surface. They likened one area to a volcanic site in Arizona. But shortly, Stafford forced his attention back inside the cabin and told his crewmates that he thought the best thing to say when they got back in radio contact with Mission Control was, quote, Houston, tell the Earth we have arrived, end quote. At the same time, back in Houston, a big crowd had gathered in mission control, nervously waiting for news from Apollo 10. Bruce Morton at the Miami Space Center in Houston. What's the mood down there right now in this waiting period? Very quiet in mission control, Walter. Uh, this has been kind of a good time flight so far. The astronauts uh, have had a lot of fun, and so have the people in mission control with the television transmissions, uh, the sights of uh, an upside-down John Young and so forth. But uh, all that's changed now, of course, with the spacecraft out of communication. Uh, there's a big crowd in mission control, along, of course, with the regular shift, the flight controllers. Uh, lots of astronauts have come in. Rusty Schweikert, who was, uh, of course, on the Apollo 9 flight, 
the Apollo 10 backup crew, Gordon Cooper, Don Isley, and Edgar Mitchell, most of the high-ranking NASA officials who are normally here and a number who are stationed elsewhere, Dr. Werner von Braun, for example, the uh, chief architect of the Saturn rocket, Dr. Kurt Debus, head of the Kennedy Space Center, Deke Slayton, chief of the astronauts' office, and uh, just a flock of executives from uh, North American and Grumman, the builders of the command and service module and the lunar module, respectively. The wives, as far as we can make out uh, on this monitor and from our pipeline into mission control, are all uh, staying at home watching this, I suppose, on television and uh, waiting uh, more anxiously than most of us to see how it comes out. The time passed slowly until it reached one minute to signal acquisition. As a matter of fact, uh, don't they, they come into a dark period just before the acquisition of signal again. The right. terminator, the, the dark side of the moon, as far as the sun is concerned, is actually about halfway, a little more than halfway around the moon. And they're in it now, or should be. And we should be hearing something in the next 20 seconds or so. Uh, these are breath-holding moments. We got word from them very shortly, it's hoped. Boy, that circuit up from Houston is certainly silent right now. <laughs> it's piping through. AOS. AOS, he said? They would pick up one of them. We are getting data. We don't have any voice communication yet. But at the time we got data, indicates it was a very good burn. Meaning that the data came through at precisely 512. Jack Riley was on there immediately thereafter saying AOS, as you heard, acquisition of signal. The data comes down in thousands of bits of information per second. It's the telemetry information that is fed from all of the systems aboard the spacecraft, as well as the biological uh, reports, respiration, heartbeat. Besides that, there are the voice circuits and the television circuits. I don't want to talk too much here because we want to hear those first words when they come through. Hello, Apollo 10, Houston, over. Uh, Roger, Houston, Apollo 10, you can tell the world that we have arrived. Roger, Dan, it's good to well, have you. I would believe this thing. That was John Young. The guidance was absolutely fantastic and we'll give you the, the burns right now. This engine is just beautiful. Charlie, my hat's off to the guys in the trench. I love them. Yeah, give that man that runs MSFN. I don't know what I can do that, though, but I'll say thank you. Okay, Charlie, ready? Copy your burns. This is John Young reporting on the burn of the service propulsion system engine, which put the command ship and its attached lunar module into an absolutely perfect orbit around the moon, as had been planned months, even years ago, and is in, the, uh, in their logbook. They did exactly as uh, they were expected to do. The engines performed exactly as they were expected to perform, and the orbit around the moon is exactly what they had anticipated. It is uh, a important moment in the history of the Apollo program since this is the first firing of the uh, service propulsion system engine with the uh, lunar module attached uh, in uh, the lunar environment and uh, there was no uh, uh, trouble with it, no anomalies as they would say in the uh, space program, no vibrations, no difficulties that might have been uh, anticipated. They did not happen and everything is going exceedingly well up there. You heard the uh, 
happy voices of the astronauts as they came around the far side of the moon and for the first time there in almost 45 minutes were back in touch with Earth and could report uh, that they were in lunar orbit and that all was going well. They passed their, uh, their congratulations to the MSFN, the Manned Space Flight Network, for all of its work uh, in uh, putting them right on target. They were only one mile off and 11 minutes off when they arrived uh, by the moon uh, earlier today. They had only made one mid-course correction out of a possible four in their long three-day flight to the moon. Now they spend uh, two revolutions around the moon at this orbit, going out as far as 195 miles from the moon in the Apolloon or Apogee, the high point around the moon, come back to that 69-mile low point. They fire their engines again at, uh, at the end of four hours to circularize the orbit at 69 miles, a little over 68, between 68 and 69 miles high, and uh, they stay in that orbit then. Uh, through uh, their stay uh, around the moon and uh, up to the time tomorrow when Tom Stafford and Eugene Sermon, Cernan depart from the uh, command ship in the lunar module sweep down to within 10 miles of the moon's surface. Tonight... Stafford, Young, and Cernan were fascinated by how much slower they seemed to travel around the moon than they had around the Earth. They liked the slower pace because on the first orbit they would pass directly over the area where Apollo 11 was due to land two months later. They had barely rounded the corner before Stafford and Cernan began describing the physical features of a reel they called Highway US-1 leading to the landing site. By the third orbit, the world was sharing the view on color television. Watchers could see the gray, white, black, and brownish tints of the landing site, which seemed to be free from boulders, providing a smooth landing field. Here's a few edited clips of the astronauts describing what they saw. We're coming right up on uh, Conscious uh, Papa Kilo Hotel and Golf here, uh, leading into the landing site area. Roger, we're picking them up now. The sea of, of fertility is off to their left as they follow this equatorial path around the moon. They're coming up over a range just before the sea tranquility appears over right under them and to their right. And uh, there on the southwestern corner of the sea of tranquility uh, is the landing site where... Here's, here's the crater masculine. 
About six hours after reaching the moon, it was time for Cernan and Stafford to begin getting the lander ready. Young opened the command module's forward hatch and removed the docking mechanism, opening up a short tunnel between the two craft and clearing the way for Gene Cernan to enter the lander. When he did, pushing off the command module's floor floating through the tunnel, it was like entering another world. Opening Snoopy's hatch, he found himself staring at the floor of the tiny cabin as if he were hanging by his toes. He tucked his body into a spin until he was upright in the small gray space. The lander was a strange machine, even from the inside, but Cernan had come to know it well. In front of him was a square instrument panel packed with switches, gauges, and displays. At waist height were two sets of hand controllers, one for each man. There were two small triangular windows, one on either side of the main panel, and a smaller rectangular rendezvous window in the ceiling on the commander's side. More panels, covered with circuit breakers, lined the side walls. Bundles of wiring and all kinds of plumbing were visible along the floor, exposed because covering them would have added too much weight. They gave the cabin the look of a boiler room. Behind Cernan, atop a small ledge, the can-shaped cover for the lander's ascent engine protruded into the cabin. There were no seats. None were needed. The lunar module was the first true spacecraft. It only flew in the void of space. Of course, the reason the lunar module looked so strange was simple. It had to be as lightweight as possible. The Grumman designers achieved the biggest weight savings from splitting the craft into two pieces. A boxy descent stage held the rocket used for the landing, 
as well as the landing gear and supplies needed for the moonwalk. It would be left behind on the landing mission to the moon. Perched atop the box was the angular ascent stage, which contained everything else. The crew cabin with its controls, supplies, breathing oxygen and electronics, as well as a separate rocket for the ascent from the lunar surface back to orbit. Before long, however, the lunar module was hopelessly overweight and the Grumman people were obsessed with making it lighter. In short order, the seats called for in an early design were scrapped since the astronauts would not need them in the near weightlessness of the moon's one-sixth g. Then, all traces of aerodynamic curves were shaved off. By 1965, with 95% of the lunar module design finalized, the weight trimmers were still looking for ounces. In the end, the lander became a strange mix of strength and fragility. The skin of the descent stage was only a mylar wrapping stretched over a frame. In the ascent stage, the walls of the crew cabin were thinned down until they were nothing more than a taut aluminum balloon. In some places, only five thousandths of an inch thick. Once a workman accidentally dropped a screwdriver inside the cabin and it went through the floor. Now in space, it seemed deceptively flimsy. When the cabin was pressurized, the front hatch bulged outward. But it was sturdy enough, even more so, for the moon. For about two hours, Cernan was to check Snoopy's systems in preparation for the next day's dress rehearsal. But when he arrived, he found himself floating in a snowstorm of white fiberglass. It had somehow blown out of an insulation blanket on the tunnel wall and had found its way into the lunar module via a pressurization valve. Before he could do anything more, Cernan had to vacuum the fiberglass bits out of the air. Stafford arrived to lend a hand and burst out laughing. There was Cernan with bits of white insulation stuck to his hair, his eyelashes, his mouth, and all Stafford could think of was chicken-plucking time at the poultry house. There followed a couple hours of concentrated work. Cernan was tunnel-visioned into his checklist, and when there was a lull, he stopped and conspicuously tried to take in what was happening. On Cernan's first flight, the Gemini 9 mission, three years earlier, Cernan's moment of realization had come during a two-hour spacewalk. He was floating next to the spacecraft with no sense of speed as he whizzed around the Earth at 17,500 miles per hour, about to make an unsuccessful attempt to test a rocket-powered backpack. And he took a moment to look around at the planet passing beneath him, at the craft that was his sanctuary in the void, at the blinding sun in dark space. The same thing happened now, inside Snoopy, as Cernan looked up from his checklist. The two triangular windows were still covered by translucent yellow shades, but he could see the moon's surface through them, drifting slowly and silently past. Eerie, 
because of the yellow tint. He wasn't quite sure it was real, and he said to himself, Do you realize where you really are? Now I have the clip of Cernan entering the lunar module. Okay, uh, 10, this is Houston. We're about uh, showing about a minute 50 from LOS, and just to verify, we're, we're calibrating, or we're figuring on AOS at 82-38-52, John. All right, Roger, and Gino is just now posing into the lamp, uh, followed by showers of insulation. Hey, we're going to have a heck of a cleaning job here. They had insulation all in the seal, all in the valve, and it's really a heck of a mess up here. Okay, we copy, Tom. It would have been just about impossible to get that limb. Uh, 10, this is Houston. Go ahead. Uh, Roger, Tom. I want to, you've got the, have you got the umbilical hooked up to your suits now? I'm still on my umbilical here. I'm up in the tunnel trying to help you get this trap cleaned up. Yeah, okay, Tom. You might want to watch real close uh, when you, if you do unhook the umbilicals to try and keep letting that mylar get in the intake or the inlet side of those things and get into the suit, suit loop. After cleaning up and getting the lunar module ready for the big dress rehearsal that would occur the next day, the astronauts settled down into a sleep period. They had intended to leave the passageway to the lander open after returning to the command ship, but the hardware was too bulky. It was simpler and quite easy to put the probe and the drogue back into place. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode 194 of the Space Rocket History podcast entitled Apollo 10, Acquisition of Signal and Lunar Orbit. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the shuttle-level donors. There are two so far this year. Shuttle-level donors give $70 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, shuttle donors. Had a couple afterthoughts this week. We had a lot of talk about using the lunar module engine as a backup in case something went wrong with the service propulsion engine. The lunar module engine is smaller, but that would just mean they would have to burn it longer. Pretty interesting stuff. Do you think we will ever need to use that engine in an emergency situation? Hmm. I think it's pretty good planning on NASA's part. Did you hear Walter Cronkite talking about the telemetry transmitting at thousands of bits per second. <laughs> well, it was fast at the time. Well, of course now, we're a lot faster than that. Stafford was not too happy about all that insulation floating around, especially in the lunar module. 
and Mission Control was concerned about getting into the astronauts' suits. It was definitely not a good situation, but they vacuumed that stuff up and got through it. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention was I put a link on my webpage, spacerockethistory.com, and it is for a calendar called Objective Moon, and it is a free calendar that you can download. Tom Rednor does this every year. The calendar has significant dates relating to the Apollo program throughout the calendar year. I have one, and it is free. So it's available if you want it. Just scroll down the right side of the page and you will see it. It's a PDF file and you can just download it and print it out. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that one out. I was pleased to receive three pledges on uh, for Patreon this past week. And number one was Click Spring pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and Jack P. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level, and We Martians pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Click Spring and We Martians are both uh, Patreon creators. I went and saw their page, so check that out if you get a chance on Patreon, and we certainly do appreciate the uh, support from them. That brings the total Patreons to 91 so far this year, with a goal of reaching 150, and the overall total number of donors to 104, with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of 2017. If you value this podcast, you can make a one-time donation at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, by clicking on the orange Donate button, or you can sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link just below the donate button. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters. And I have a list of them here of my all my retweeters from January. 1202 Alarm, Ashley James Lee, ATM Int Arch, Bird at Home, Bonner to You, Bruce Lipe, Buddy P. Murphy, Beacon 63, Captain Beardy, Chris Towers, Cole Badger, Condors Condor, Krusty Sea Dog, David B. Nugent, Duke of Oil 60, DJ SNM, Der Roder, Falcon 124, Futurama King, Herr Bush, Hollow Books, Jacob Hahn, James 2904, Kadavi 1202, Keith Drankwine, KHS Astronomy, Lanyard 73, Michael Hoadley, Minor Insight, Pee Wee 888, Pompeiator, Rapid Mustang, Rocket Noob, Stiggy, Skibby, Shinar Squirrel, Shatara CXW, Stephen Neal 63, The Rocketry Show, The JR Flyboy, This is Alex Boyd, Tomasino 1202, Vessel Avocat 1966, William Bullock, WW1 Tech. I really appreciate it, January tweeters. If I missed anyone, let me know and I will get you next time. 
and if I mispronounce anybody's name, I do apologize. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Apollo 10 and see if we can take that lunar module for a spin. In podcast statistics, I wanted to share with you the countries number 11 through 20 in downloads for the year of 2016. This is for the entire year of 2016, countries 11 through 20, because I've already told you what 1 through 10 were. Number 11, Spain. Number 12, Ireland. Number 13, Austria. 14, Switzerland. 15, Denmark. 16, South Africa. 17, Belgium. 18, Norway. 19, Finland. And 20 is Brazil. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thanks so much for listening and downloading. In other podcast news, we're getting close to the 200 episode mark. Of course, we will celebrate this in the traditional fashion. (laughs) And if you don't know what that is, you can find the traditional fashion on episode 50, 100, and 150. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I will try to get episode 195 up by next Thursday. So long for now.